It was R.A. Torrey who first gained God's vision and heart to bring spiritual awakening in a truly worldwide global setting. And that meant that this wave of awakening would cross the Pacific Ocean and it would land in Asia. And so Tory brought it to New Zealand, but there were others who brought it to uh, Korea. And it was uh, a group of Presbyterian and Methodist missionaries there who um, did the kind of praying that drew down the presence of God in Korea. So let me share that story now with you. Um, the, the, the primarily Presbyterian, but also Methodist missionaries, um, in, early in the century, so 1903 and 4, um, began to pray for more results from their efforts. And in the midst of all of that, they heard a stirring talk um, by a Mr. Agnew from uh, headquarters who had just been to the Cassia Hills in India and was able to share with them what God was doing in India. Now, India had um, received a whole lot of prayer. Um, in India, a, a man named John Hyde, uh, Presbyterian, uh, really was stirred to do the kind of intensive prayer that is required if you're going to have an outpouring of the presence of God in a place. Also, there were others. Um, and of course, R.A. Torrey spent some time in northern India and the result was a huge outpouring of the Spirit of God there. Um, some Welsh Presbyterians went there. So there was, for some reason, a convergence of um, these uh, various groups that believed in revival prayer and were experiencing revival in these different places, and they converged on India things broke out where huge numbers of people, these were tribal people in the, the Cassia Hills and other parts of North India, and now all of that is being reported to the Koreans, and they are starting to get their eyes open. So let me describe for you uh, what kind of prayer they were involved in. After we had prayed about a month, said Mr. Swallen, a brother proposed that we stop the prayer meeting, saying, we have prayed about a month and nothing unusual has come of it. So they're, they're praying after this, this presentation and, and asking God together to do it for Korea. Why should, why should it just be for India? And, uh, uh, Here's a brother who's saying, well, we're spending a lot of time. I don't think it just is justified. Let us go on with our work as usual, and we can each pray at home as we find it convenient. The proposal seemed plausible. However, the majority decided to continue the prayer meeting, believing that the Lord would not deny Pyongyang what he had granted to Cassia.
they decided to give more time to prayer instead of less. And with that in view, they changed the hour from 12 to 4 so that they were free to pray until supper time. And there was little else than prayer, he goes on. If anyone had an encouraging item to relate, it was given as they continued in prayer. They prayed about four months, and they said the result was that all forgot about being Methodists and Presbyterians. They realized that they were all one in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was true church union. It was brought about on the knees. It would last, and it would glorify the Most High. And so that's Jonathan Goforth's, Goforth's uh, description of the prayer as he got it from Mr. Swallen. Jonathan Goforth was in Korea from China because he had heard about uh, what was happening in Korea and he was very interested in that. He wanted to, to get a hold of that for his work in China and we'll report on that next. But uh, things came together in this place, uh, Central Presbyterian Church in Pyongyang. These are two of the missionaries and then some of the elders of the Presbyterian Church at that time. And uh, gives you an idea, because what I want to do now is to describe for you, in the words of Mr. Blair, one of those uh, missionaries, what happened. In my view, this is one of the most uh, direct, impressive, um, accurate, detailed pictures of what happens when God comes to town uh, in the whole annals of history. Um, it, it doesn't get any clearer than this. So let me just read to you what Mr. Blair uh, wrote. At Monday noon, we missionaries met and cried out to God in earnest. We were bound in spirit and refused to let go until he blessed us. That night, it was very different. Each felt as he entered the church that the room was full of God's presence. Not only missionaries, but Koreans testify to the same thing. After a short sermon, Mr. Lee took charge of the meeting and called for prayers. So many began praying that Mr. Lee said, if you want to pray like that, all pray. And the whole audience began to pray out loud all together. The effect was indescribable, not confusion, but a vast harmony of sound and spirit, a mingling together of souls moved by an irresistible impulse of prayer. I believe this is where the practice of Koreans praying all at the same time, this is where it began. The prayer sounded to me like the falling of many waters, an ocean of prayer beating against God's throne. It was not many, but one, born of one spirit, lifted to one Father above. Just as on the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place, of one accord, praying, and suddenly there came from heaven the sound as of the rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. God is not always in the whirlwind. Neither does he always speak in a still small voice. He came to us in Pyongyang that night with the sound of weeping. As the prayer continued, a spirit of heaviness and sorrow for sin came down upon the audience. Over on one side, someone began to weep, and in a moment, the whole audience was weeping. 
Man after man would rise, confessing his sins, breaking down and weeping, and then throwing himself to the floor. He would beat the floor with his fists in an a, a perfect agony of conviction. My own cook tried to make a confession, broke down in the midst of it, and cried to me across the room, Pastor, tell me, is there any hope for me? Can I be forgiven? And then he threw himself to the floor, wept and wept, and almost screamed in agony. Sometimes, after a confession, the whole audience would break out in audible prayer, and the effect of that audience of hundreds of men praying together in audible prayer was something indescribable. Again, after another confession, they would break out in uncontrollable weeping. We would all weep. We couldn't help it. And so the meeting went on until 2 o'clock a.m. with confession and weeping and praying. Only a few of the missionaries were present on that Monday night. And on Tuesday morning, Mr. Lee and I went from house to house telling the good news to all who were absent and to our Methodist friends in the city. That noon, the whole foreign community assembled to render thanks to God. I wish to describe the Tuesday night meeting in my own language because a part of what happened concerned me personally. We were aware that bad feeling existed between several of our church officers, especially between a Mr. Kong and a Mr. Kim. Mr. Kong confessed his hatred for Mr. Kim on Monday night, but Mr. Kim was silent. At our noon prayer meeting on Tuesday, several of us gathered to pray for Mr. Kim. I was especially interested because Mr. Kong was my assistant in the North Pyongyang Church, and Mr. Kim an elder in the Central Church, and one of the officers in the Pyongyang Men's Association, of which I was chairman. As the meeting progressed, I could see Mr. Kim sitting with the elders behind the pulpit with his head down, bowing where I sat. I asked God to help him, and looking up, I saw him coming forward. Holding to the pulpit, he made his confession. I have been guilty of fighting against God. An elder in the church, I have been guilty of hating not only Kang Yu Moon, but Pang Moksa. Pang Moksa is my Korean name. I never had a greater surprise in my life to think that this man, my associate in the men's association, had been hating me without my knowing it. It seems that I had said something to him one day in the hurry of managing a school field day exercise which gave offense, and he had not been able to forgive me. Turning to me, he said, Can you forgive me? Can you pray for me? I stood up and began to pray. Apage, apage, I got no further. It seemed as if the roof was lifted from the building, and the Spirit of God came down from heaven in a mighty avalanche of power upon us. I fell at Kim's side and wept and prayed as I had never prayed before. My last glimpse of the audience is photographed indelibly on my brain. Some threw themselves full length on the floor. Hundreds stood with arms outstretched toward heaven. Every man forgot every other. Each was face to face with God. I can hear yet that fearful sound of hundreds of men pleading with God for life and for mercy. The cry went out over the city until the heathen were in consternation. As soon as we were able, we missionaries gathered at the platform and consulted, what should we do? If we let them go on like this, some will go crazy. Yet we dared not interfere. We had prayed for, to God for an outpouring of his spirit on the people, and it had come. Separating, we went down and tried to comfort the most distressed. 
pulling the agonized man to the floor and saying, Never mind, brother. If you have sinned, God will forgive you. Wait, and an opportunity will be given for you to speak. And finally, Mr. Lee started a hymn, and quiet was restored during the singing. Then began a meeting the like of which I had never seen before, nor wished to see again, unless in God's sight it is absolutely necessary. Every sin in a human being can, that a human being can commit was publicly confessed that night. Pale and trembling with emotion, in agony of body, mind and body, guilty souls, standing in the white light of that judgment, saw themselves as God saw them. Their sins rose up in all their vileness till shame and grief and self-loathing took complete possession. Pride was driven out, the face of men forgotten. Looking up to heaven to Jesus whom they had betrayed, they smote themselves and cried out with bitter wailing, Lord, cast us not away forever. Everything else was forgotten, nothing else mattered. The scorn of men, the penalty of the law, even death itself seemed of small consequence if only God forgave. We may have our theories of the desirability or undesirability of public confession of sin. I have had mine, but I know now that when the Spirit of God falls on guilty souls, there will be confession and no power on earth can stop it. Wow, I can't read that without weeping myself. It's just impossible for me. And it just spread from there. It just spread out. Um, nothing could stop this conviction of sin. And so Jonathan Goforth gives us some specific examples of what happened as the Spirit of God began to really move multitudes. We're talking multitudes. A woman who for days seemed to pass through the agonies of hell confessed one evening in a public meeting to the sin of adultery. The missionary in charge of the meeting was greatly alarmed for he knew that her husband was present and knew that if that husband killed her, he would be in accordance with Korean law. That husband, in tears, went over and knelt beside his sinning wife and forgave her. Such extraordinary happenings could not but move the multitude, and the churches became crowded. Many came to mock, but in fear began to pray. The leader of a robber band, who came out of idle curiosity, was convicted and converted, went straight to the magistrate and gave himself up. The astonished official said, You have no accuser, you accuse yourself. We have no law in Korea to meet your case. And he dismissed him. A Japanese officer at the time of the revival was quartered in Pyongyang. He had imbibed the agnostic ideas of the West. Therefore, to him, spiritual things were beneath contempt. Still, the strange transformations that were taking place, not only among great numbers of Koreans, but even among some Japanese who couldn't even understand the language, so puzzled him that he attended the meetings to investigate. The result was that all his unbelief was swept away and he became a follower of Jesus. You wonder, how could there be such fascination when there's also so much weeping and distress. And yet people, by the thousands, came into these churches because they wanted what God 
was dispensing in the church. And they would speak ever after of this experience of agony as a blessing. How do you account for this? Well, it's because when the presence of God is bestowed, it becomes a blessing like no other blessing that is possible on earth. And so people came through this experience of what Jonathan Edwards called a legal awakening and came into the awareness of the grace of God and it became a grace awakening. And it's, it's the two together that formed this great awakening in wherever we see this pattern. If, if, if it's going to be a great awakening that's going to transform whole nations, we see that God visits people with this kind of conviction of sin. Now, it's been a long time, it seems to me, since we've seen this kind of thing in our country. But I believe God has given me the promise that he's, he's going to bring this back. He's going to bring a great awakening like this to the whole world. I believe there's going to be a third great awakening. Remember James McGreedy and his band of prayer warriors. I believe that God wants to do this. But if it's going to be genuine, if it's going to be a true great awakening, then there's going to be mass conviction of sin that goes along with it. And um, I, I hope that we can see this vision as the blessing that it is, that we will want God's presence, a time of refreshing from the presence of the Lord, even though it will come at, at the cost of a great deal of uh, weeping and woe.